0: Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 11. I'll read our text as it is found in verse 28. To the end of the chapter, Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Simply reading this text is a statement of something to you today that you already know. This is one of those well-known Bible verses. So much so that even the youngest in our midst here today very likely knows these words off by heart. But my question is, have you responded to them? Have you responded to them? Because Jesus is preaching here in a context. Indeed, he's preaching to cities that have heard him preached and seen his miracles on many occasions. Namely, the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum in the region of Galilee where Jesus did many of his mighty works. And Jesus in the verses immediately prior to this is warning these cities concerning their privileges. He says in a sense that your greater privilege, if neglected and spurned, will ultimately end in your greater condemnation. And so he cries to them in verse 20 or 21. Woe unto thee, Kaurasin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in thee had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. And then verse 23, And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. Solemn words. You need to hear them today. This place is like Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum unto the souls of those who visit it. But yet, on the back of that solemn warning, he extends mercy. He does so with a very simple command, which is also a wonderfully gracious invitation. Come unto me. Literally, hear Hither, come unto me. It's one of, if not the most frequent ways, the Lord Jesus Christ invites sinners to believe the gospel. And so we began with our call to worship today, with those glorious words in the prophet Isaiah chapter 55, where three times in one verse, God says, come, ho, every one that... Come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye. Buy and eat, yea, come. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then verse 3, he says it again, incline your ear and come unto me. John chapter 7, the Savior stands up on the last Day of the feast. And he cries unto the people. If any man thirst. Let him come unto me. And drink. And even at the end of the Bible. In the last few verses. God cannot come to a conclusion. Without issuing a final invitation of mercy. And three times again. Like in Isaiah chapter 55. We are invited to come and the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him who is athirst come, and take of the water of life freely. Yet none of those verses explain to us what coming is, none of them explain what coming is. They don't spell out the steps. And I think that's very significant. And there's a danger. I face that danger today. That when we preach about coming to Christ, we want to outline all of these steps that sinners have to go through in order that they might come to Christ. But the Bible doesn't do that. God says, come. Because it's so simple. God forbid that we complicate it this morning. Think of Jesus in John chapter 6 where he says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh unto me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. That helps us, doesn't it? It tells us that to come to Christ is to believe on Christ. But the contrary is also true. That to believe on Christ is to come to Christ. Think of it like this. You hear certain things. The gospel is preached. As it's preached, you believe those things. However, it is a belief that acts. It comes to Jesus. Parents, think of your child and the child is in distress or danger. And you see the panic in the child's face. What do you do? You might reach out your hands to the child and say, come here, come to me. And the child will run to the outstretched arms of its parents. You don't really need much more of an explanation than that, do you? Jesus says, come to me. You know certain things, and you trust in them, so that you simply come. Well, with God's help this morning, let's open this up. Come to me. First of all, by considering the people who are invited. The people who are invited. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Those who are laboring and those who are laden. The first word describes a people who are weary, near to the point of exhaustion. The second term describes those who are burdened. And together they picture a person who is worn out and pressed down by sin. While Jesus addresses that person. And we have thus in this verse a gracious offer to all sinners. It's important you understand that. A gracious offer to all sinners because one of the things people do to complicate this simple call, come, is that they restrict the offer of the gospel. They rightly identify that the Bible teaches the sovereign election of a particular number of sinners unto salvation. They get that right. And they likewise correctly conclude that only that elect multitude will be saved. However, they wrongly conclude from that that the offer of salvation is only for the elect. Well, they have a problem, don't they? Because they come to a text like this and Jesus throws the door of mercy wide open and he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Ah, but they say, Don't you see? The offer is only to those who labor and are heavy laden. It's only for the weary. Well, friends, all people in the world are sinners. And all sinners are weary. Some of you know the catechism. Question and answer 19. All mankind by their fall lost communion with God are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all miseries of this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. All mankind all mankind are thirsty. Well, here comes Jesus to weary and thirsty sinners and he offers life and salvation to all so that you need to understand this morning that upon hearing this call, you have the immediate right and warrant to come freely to Christ. He's preaching in these cities that he's just upbraided for despising and neglecting all of their gospel privileges. He's saying, you've been exalted to here. You're going to be cast down to hell. And yet, to these hard and penitent sinners, he says, come to me. Come to me. It's a gracious offer to all sinners. But then let's go a step further. It is a glad offer to awakened sinners. So yes, while the above is true, Jesus offers salvation to all who hear the gospel. It is also true that only those who feel their need will come. So by the Spirit, the Lord does bring sinners to feel their burden. And that's not true necessarily of all sinners. You know that there are many sinners in the world, even in the church, who make a mock of sin. Or if they accept the fact that they're sinners, they have completely the wrong idea of their sin. It's like somebody who's broken a fingernail and says, oh, look at that. I've got a broken fingernail. When in reality, they're suffering from stage four terminal cancer. The church is cursed with that. People who say, oh yes, I'm a sinner. But they haven't even begun to realize the seriousness of their sins. Well, not here. Here are sinners who are laboring and laden under the burden of their sin. Well, how do you sense that in your soul? First of all, By a sense of emptiness in the world. A sense of emptiness in the world. That comes from the word here, labor or weariness. You see, there are sinners, indeed all sinners, who are really longing for the satisfaction that only Christ can give. But they're looking in all the wrong places for that satisfaction. And so they go to all the pleasure gods. Maybe if I can go out with my friends and party, then I'll be happy. And they're happy for a moment, but then they wake up the next morning miserable and maybe more miserable. And so they add to it not just friendship and partying, but alcohol and drugs and sex. And if that doesn't do it well, they earn money and they go on cruises and holidays and they buy things and they get bigger houses and more cars. And maybe I'll find satisfaction with that. But all they're doing is wearying themselves. Trying to satisfy their souls. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the water. What's the problem? Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? And your labor on that which satisfies not? Have you begun to learn that all this world, in respect to being able to satisfy your soul, must bring you to the conclusion of Solomon? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. You're like a thirsty man. And every time you go for a drink, it's salt water. And it only makes you more thirsty. The emptiness. Or the sense of emptiness in the world. But then with that, the sense of sin before a holy God. The psalmist describes it even as a believer in Psalm 38 verse 4. Mine iniquities have gone up above my head and as a heavy burden they are too heavy for me. Ah, before you talked about sin and around sin. You maybe had a theori- theoretical knowledge of it, and you were particularly skilled in seeing sin in other people, but something has happened. Now you're just not talking about sin or seeing other people's sins, but you know experientially in your heart your own sin, and you understand that you are a sinner before a holy God condemned by a righteous law. Do you know that this morning? Before your sin was small, you thought you had it under control. But now it has grown in your estimation to something that you cannot deal with. Before your sin was pleasant, but now it's a poison that makes you sick. Past sins rise up like mountains, and conscience awakes to crush your soul. The sinner is often like the person sitting at home, and he's committed crimes in the past, but he's got away with them, and there's a knock at the door, and it's the police And he's carried off to the police station and the charge sheet of all of his sins is presented before him. And he discovers that his sins have found him out. And there he is sitting in the cell with his head in his hands knowing he is condemned even coming to the point where he will sentence himself. He's a sinner expecting the wrath of God and fearing the wrath of God. Well, I have good news for you this morning. Jesus says to such a sinner, Come unto me. Come unto me. Indeed, sinners who do not have a sense of their sin to some degree in this way will never come to Jesus because Jesus is totally irrelevant to them. It's like the person who would go to the doctor when he is not sick. Why would he ever do that? He has no need of the physician. But it's the one who's brought to understand his disease who runs to the physician for, for help. And so Jesus says, I am come to seek and to save that which was lost. I am not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. But then there's often a problem on the other side of that. On the one hand, people aren't sensible of their sins, so they don't come. On the other hand, people become so sensible of their sins that they're confused, and they think that they're too sinful to come. But Jesus says, no. Come to me. It's a call to laden and laboring, burdened and broken Sinners. And I would simply say this to you this morning. If your sin will not stop Jesus Christ calling you to himself, why would the sense of your sin stop you from coming to Jesus? Who does he invite? Burdened and worn out sinners. Well then secondly... The person who is inviting. So we've got the people who are invited. Secondly, the person who is inviting. Well, you see it, don't you, from verse 28, come unto me. Our Lord Jesus Christ made that offer that day to the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and, and Capernaum. And our Lord Jesus Christ holds out that same offer in this place to you today. It is His offer. It's not mine. I'm not saying to you, come unto me, though I use the words of Jesus. I'm really saying to you, go to Him. Well, who is He? Well, I trust as we try to open this question up in some way that you will see the wonder of Christ and that your heart would be stirred and you will be drawn to do just this, to come unto Christ. Who is he? Well, first of all, he is the Christ of God. He is the Christ of God. And we discover that in a particular way from the beginning of this chapter, because it starts with a question John the Baptist is in prison and about to die, and he sends two of his own disciples to Jesus seeking assurance. And so you see there in Matthew chapter 11, verse 3, And said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Now that's remarkable in and of itself, that the man who was the forerunner of the Christ, and identified him to be the Lamb of God, when he was placed in straits, facing death, wanted to be sure that he had not believed a lie. Is my hope good? Have I got it right? Who are you? And Jesus answers in one of the most beautiful ways in verse 4 and 5. Jesus answered instead unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to him. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be Offended in me. There's a collage of texts there taken from the prophet Isaiah, all of which predict the coming Messiah. Isaiah 61, Isaiah 35. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Go and tell John, I am the Christ. I am the Christ. And this that was proof to John is proof to you and me today that our Lord Jesus Christ went around performing miracles that illustrated the glorious salvation that he would bring to sinners. They authenticate his ministry. And so the one who preaches and offers salvation to us is this Christ appointed by the Father with power and authority to save. But let's go back to John in prison. And he's a sinner, just like you and I are. And now he realizes, I've got it right. And maybe he goes back to that time when Jesus walked to him in the wilderness of Judea, and he pointed and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Because what he really said in that day is that Christ is the God-appointed burden-bearer. You see, the little phrase, taketh away, it means to pick up and carry off. Well, Jesus is speaking to you today. And he says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, because I am the God-appointed Messiah, the burden-bearer of sinners. Come to me. I'll take your burden. But not only is he the Christ of God, he is the Son of the Father. He's the Son of the Father. You see that in verse 25, where he prays to his Father. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. But again in verse 27, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. What does this tell you? Well, it tells you that Jesus is the eternal Son as Of the Father that only the Son knows the Father in a true sense. And only the Father knows the Son in a true sense. Because they're both God, able to know one another in the full infinite glory of their being. However, Jesus says that the Son is given to reveal the Father unto sinners. Let me put that in another way. For you, Particularly in this context of the gospel offer, verse 27 finds Jesus saying in a sense, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the only one who can reveal to you the Father. I am the only way to the Father. Well, who's making the invitation? The Christ of God. The eternal Son of the Father. I want you to see a few things that are really helpful in this regard. And the first is, as the Son of the Father and the Christ of God, He agrees with the righteousness of God. Sometimes people preach an effeminate Sissy Jesus, who's all love and no wrath. It's not the Christ of this passage. The Christ of this passage is the one who comes thunder in these cities, in verse 21, warning them that they're going to go to the lowest depths of hell. And yet, there is no incompatibility with Jesus preaching the righteous judgment of God... Him turning round and throwing this offer of mercy open to the same sinners and saying, Come unto me. Indeed, the sense of the righteous judgment of God only gives greater urgency to Jesus to invite these sinners to Christ. But something else, not only does he agree with the righteousness of God, he rejoices. In the sovereignty of God. Do you see it in verse 25? At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, but revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemeth good in thy sight. He's just said, Lord, you're sovereign. You're sovereign in election. You're sovereign in hiding and blinding people. And you're sovereign in revealing these things unto people. Now, why do I emphasize that? Because Jesus does not dilute the sovereignty of God. And then he immediately heralds the free offer of the gospel. He understands that God is so sovereign that he can elect a multitude unto salvation and still preach the gospel to every creature. And so it is the sovereign Christ who delights in mercy, who says unto you today, Come. And he means you to understand that you may come. No matter who you are, no matter what your past is, no matter what your sins are, no matter how confused you are concerning your sins, no matter how long you've played a religious hypocrite, sitting in the church or not sitting in the church. But naming the name of Christ. You have no sin that God's grace is not able to deal with by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he bids you come. And I want to say to those of you who are very confused about divine sovereignty and the free offer of the gospel that there is absolutely nothing in the sovereign decree of God that would ever discourage you to come to Jesus Christ or should ever lead you to the conclusion that if you come, he will not receive you. There is nothing in divine sovereignty that leads to that conclusion. All that the Father will give, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. But whosoever cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. How do they come? You know the answer is, they just come. They just come. When they're invited like you are this morning and they see themselves as sinners before a holy God, They just come. Come to him. Jesus Christ alone is able to deal with your burden. You will go to other religions and you take your burden to them and they will say, go, go and perform this or that work. Jesus says, no, that's only going to increase your burden. Come to me. We have a broken culture and they run to psychiatrists and counselors and those people have their place. But listen, they might be able to help you think in a better way, but they will never ever be able to take this burden off your soul. And maybe you come closer to the truth and you come to a pastor and you want the pastor to help you and you say, I've got all these sins and all these burdens but your pastor is not Jesus and if he's a faithful pastor he'll tell you I can't help you go to him go to him because you are a burdened beggar and all I am is another beggar but this is no beggar this is the Christ of God and the Lord of glory And it is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of the Father, who says to you, come to me. Come to me. Thirdly, the peace promised. I will give you rest. You know, the reason I can't say to you, come to me, is because I can't say this. I will give you rest. But there's the promise with the invitation. And it is a promise to all because the gospel is preached to all. But you must come in order to receive the promise. And so it's equally true that the wicked are as the troubled sea whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace to the wicked, saith My God, the wicked, the burdened, the weary, the laboring, they're like the sea that is in perpetual chaotic motion. They do not know rest. Ah, but when you come to Jesus, that storm is changed into a calm. Well, let's consider this in three ways. First of all, rest in the removal of guilt. Rest in the removal of guilt. I was wondering how to explain this to you. And I thought, what better than to simply tell you the story of Pilgrim's Progress? You remember a children? There he is, Christian, living in the city of destruction. And he wakes up to find a burden upon his back, doesn't he? And nobody else has this burden. And he talks to people about it. They can't see it. They don't understand it. But eventually Christian can do nothing else but stick his fingers in his ear and run out of the city of destruction crying, Life! Life! Eternal life! And obstinate and pliable come with him. But what's the difference? They have no burden. They come to the slough of despond and Christian falls into it. He gets out of it with the help of help. And then he goes further, and he meets Mr. Legality, and he says, "I know what to do with the burden. Go to the town of Morality." And as he's on his way, the burden gets heavier, and he comes to the mountain of Sinai, and it's altogether upon a smoke, and it threatens to crush him. So he turns back, and he goes to the wicked gate, and he. to enter the arrow's fly, but he gets through it and he comes to the cross, doesn't he? And he gazes upon Christ. What happens, children? The burden rolls off his back, down the hill, and into the grave. Christian gives three leaps for joy, and went on singing. Thus far did I come laden with my sin. Nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall from off my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross. Blessed sepulcher. Blessed rather be that my that was there put to shame for me. The rest of the removal of guilt. Remember you were in the the police station and the charge sheet was before you and you sentenced yourself before God. Now Jesus comes and he says, I've paid the debt. Your pardoned go free I have nailed the guilt of your sin to the cross once and for all Come to Christ and receive the rest of the removal of guilt But then a second thing here the rest in the experience of satisfaction The sinner comes to Jesus, what happens? His perpetual chaotic motion of restlessness is over. His search for satisfaction is at an end. Prior to that, our soul was like a broken bucket, and it didn't matter how much of the world and all of its pleasures we tried to pour into it. They all poured out of it. All the ways that we fooled ourselves have been found out and all of our false joys have been exposed. But we've come to Jesus and we've discovered something. That we were created for God and our souls are restless until they find their rest in him. Remember the dove that Noah sent out of the ark? And it flew around looking for a place to rest and it had to come back again, didn't it? That's like our soul-seeking satisfaction in the world. Off it goes and it flies all over the face of this world looking for somewhere to rest but it has to come back to Noah in the ark. That's the only place of rest. Noah, by the way, means rest. We have to come to Christ. There's no rest for your soul in this world. There is only thirst. But Jesus says, whosoever drinks of this water that I give him will never thirst again because he satisfies the longing soul and he fills the hungry soul with goodness. But thirdly, rest in a new submission. Rest in your submission. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. He ties the rest to the yoke. Well, there's the sinner and he's heavy laden. What does Jesus do? He takes away one burden to replace it with another. But the burden that he gives is light. Well, do you know what's most strange about that? Is because the yoke that Jesus places upon this believer who has come to him is actually the same yoke that he was under before his coming to Christ. You say, what do you mean? This is confusing. Jesus places the yoke of submission and obedience to God upon the neck of his people. With this glorious difference, it is transformed by the grace of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how wonderful the gospel is. The same yoke of the law that condemned us to hell which was like an iron yoke with barbed wire wrapped around it, so it just dug into us and crushed us and tore us to shreds, is the same sweet, comfortable yoke that Christ places upon the shoulders of his people as they walk in this world unto glory. Here's one of the biggest problems that sinners have coming to Christ. They do not want that yoke. They do not want that yoke. But they don't understand it. They are already under it. They are already under it. But outside of Jesus Christ, it will only drag you to hell. Here's the sweet difference Jesus kept that law for his people. Jesus bore the curse and condemnation of that law for his people. And Jesus fills his people's hearts with the Spirit that enables them to walk in the ways of that law. So that there is no happier person in the world than a forgiven sinner walking in obedience to Christ. Will you come to Him this morning? Will you come to Him this morning? Maybe you're saying no. Well, I want you to understand that if you say no to this invitation, you will perish by the cross. You will go to hell wading through offers of mercy you will walk into a lost eternity past the outstretched arms of a gracious saviour and you will die of thirst beside the water of life and the joyful sound that you have heard this morning will be a torment to you forever in a lost eternity. Verse 21. Woe unto thee, sinner in Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, privileged above so many in this world, exalted to heaven, you will be cast down to the lowest depths of hell, But Jesus says to you today, come unto me, come unto me, and I will give you rest. Please stand as we pray.